Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Get into 1 Corinthians and open the Bible. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a living God who wants to speak to us through your living word. Lord, we want to be people who receive your word and allow it to transform our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you'd give us the grace to do that and you would do your work in our lives by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it only lasted for three days, but in the course of those three days, 50,000 people died. It was the bloodiest battle in the deadliest war that the United States has ever fought in. It took place at a place called Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, and it was during the Civil War. And to this day, the Civil War is the deadliest military conflict the United States has ever engaged in. Think about that, if you will. The greatest loss of life in American history did not come at the hands of a foreign enemy who was set on destroying us. It came from fighting amongst ourselves. Family members, fellow countrymen, people who should have been united, turned on each other and attacked each other. And the challenge that the president at the time, Abraham Lincoln, was faced with was this. How do you take two groups of people who are bitterly divided, who hate each other, and reunite them and make them one people once again? How do you, on the one hand, stand up for the truth and fight for what is right, and at the same time, not remain divided? Seems like an impossible task. But what Abraham Lincoln did is he went out and he stood on that blood-stained field in Gettysburg and he gave a speech, his most famous speech, the Gettysburg Address. And in that speech, it was only a few minutes long, it was very short, he reminded the people of the vision for which the United States had been created. Here's what he said. He said, remember, a new nation dedicated to the idea that all men are created equal. What was he doing? He was calling people on both sides of this conflict to reunite around a higher purpose. Reunite around a higher purpose. But did you know that wasn't the last time that soldiers gathered on the battlefield of Gettysburg? Several years later, soldiers from the north and from the south met again, once again, on the battlefield of Gettysburg. On the 3rd of July, 1913, Union soldiers gathered on one side of the battlefield. Southern Confederate soldiers gathered on the other side, each of them wearing their uniforms. They gave their battle cries, and they began to advance towards the front line, towards each other. But this time, instead of guns and swords, they carried in their hands crutches and canes. And when these two armies met, rather than attacking each other, this time they hugged each other. And in the same place where they had fought and maimed and injured and killed each other, these men wept on each other's shoulders. They cried. They, they embraced each other. And reconciliation took place. It was called the Great Reunion. You can look it up and read about it. Newspapers at the time said that it was the most powerful demonstration of national unity ever in American history. And Abraham Lincoln wasn't there to see it because he was killed by a fellow American just days after the end of the Civil War. But it was his leadership that led to the Great Reunion because as president, Abraham Lincoln had championed both truth 
and grace, truth and grace to lead to reconciliation. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written to a church that was going through a civil war. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the city of Corinth in modern-day Greece. And the reason why Paul wrote this letter is because the Corinthians had some problems, and chief amongst their problems was that the Corinthian church was plagued by divisions. There was a civil war going on in the Corinthian church. Some of their divisions were caused by a lack of truth. They needed Paul to come in and and address issues and clarify them with clear biblical teaching to correct them. They needed truth. But you know what? Some of their divisions were also caused by a lack of grace. There There was truth in some cases, but there was an arrogance or a pride, a lack of love, a lack of charity, an unwillingness to forgive. Divisions caused by lack of truth in some cases, in other cases caused by a lack of grace. And here in this letter, Paul is going to make a passionate appeal for the importance of both grace and truth. Friends, you know this, that grace and truth are not opposing ideas that are at odds with one another, right? Rather, you know what they are? They're like two mountains in the same mountain range, two giants, You don't have to choose one at the expense of the other. Rather, the way of Jesus is to have both grace and truth in full measure at the same time. You know, we live in a society, speaking of division, that is incredibly divided right now. Incredibly divided. I hear stories constantly about friends and family members who no longer talk to each other because they have differing views on politics or the pandemic And there's this tendency in our society today that rather than doing the hard work of of working through our conflicts and difficulties, rather we're very quick to throw up our hands and just divide and say, I'm out of here, I'm done, and just divide and splinter and fraction. And the question is this, in a society that's like this, how are we as followers of Jesus called to be different How are we called to be different? What we're going to see here in the opening section of 1 Corinthians is that as followers of Jesus, we are called to be united by a higher calling. United by a higher calling. That's the title of today's message. And what we're going to see in this passage today is this, that the cure for unnecessary divisions is found in being united by the higher calling we have in Jesus. The cure for unnecessary divisions is found in being united by the higher calling we have in Jesus. So take that sentence, write it down in your notes, take a photo of it, memorize it. That's going to be our outline for studying this passage, and it's your takeaway truth for today. So we're going to be taking that down, breaking it down as we study the passage. Let's begin by looking at the first part, the cure for unnecessary divisions. Let's jump right in, verse 1, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, when the Corinthians opened this letter, they would have unrolled this scroll, and the first thing they would have seen at the top of the scroll was this name, Paul. Now, they knew this name. They were very familiar with this name because Paul had been the founder and the very first pastor of their church. You can read about it in Acts chapter 18, how Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey and established this church there. So Paul had a relationship with the Corinthian Christians. One thing you need to know, though, about 1 Corinthians is that the name of the letter, 
that we call it, 1 Corinthians, is a little bit misleading. Let me explain why. Because prior to this letter, Paul had already been corresponding with the Corinthian church through a series of letters which are not part of our Bibles. Now, that's important to keep in mind because what it means and what it reminds us of is that not everything that the apostles wrote was considered holy scripture and inspired by God. Even though we call this letter 1 Corinthians, we know for sure that this was not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. How do we know that? In chapter 5, you can peek ahead if you're interested, Paul mentions another letter that he had written to them prior to this one. So ever since Paul had left Corinth and moved on to evangelize in other areas and start new churches, Paul had kept in touch with the Corinthians through a series of letters. But when it came to this letter, there was something different. Paul knew it. The Corinthians could sense it. Other people could see it when they read this letter, that this letter was inspired by God in the same way that the Old Testament scriptures written by Moses and the prophets were also inspired by God. And this letter was considered by the early Christians, amongst other letters that Paul had written, that this letter was holy scripture. So Paul wrote this letter from the city of Ephesus, where he was at during his third missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts chapter 19. He mentions that he's with this guy named Sosthenes. Who is that? Probably Sosthenes was Paul's scribe, and Paul was dictating this letter. Sosthenes was writing it down, and Paul said, hey, throw your name in there too, bud. But as you'll see, Paul writes a lot of this in the first person. It's Paul's message to the Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter in response to two things. First of all, he wrote this letter in response to questions the Corinthian Christians had written to ask him about in a previous letter. So he's writing to answer doctrinal questions. The second reason Paul wrote this letter is that he had gotten a bad report about the Corinthian church from a woman named Chloe. We're going to read about that in verse 10. But in the first, because of that, the two reasons, here's the breakdown of this letter. The first six chapters, Paul is going to be addressing the disturbing report that he had received about the Corinthian church. And then, starting in chapter 7, Paul is going to answer the doctrinal questions the Corinthians had written to ask him about. Now, because of the nature of this letter, we know more about the Corinthian church than we know about any other church from this time period, in the early church period. But also, this is one of the most practical books in the entire Bible. I like to think of 1 Corinthians as a guide to practical Christian living. It's a book about real discipleship and following Jesus in the world today. Because the city of Corinth was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. We'll talk more about Corinth as we go on in our study, but just know this. Corinth was not an easy place to be a Christian. The city was full of temptations, and the culture of Corinth was diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus. So the challenge that the Corinthian Christians faced was how do we live faithfully as followers of Jesus in Corinth without allowing Corinth to influence us away from Jesus? That's a challenge that many of us face in our own lives, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your extended family, maybe in the, the place where you live. This is why Paul says in verse 2, he says, to those 
who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says you have been sanctified and you are called to be saints. That's interesting. So to sanctify means to make holy, to make holy. He says you have been made holy in Christ and you are called to live as saints, which means holy ones. So you have been made holy in Christ, and you are called to live as holy people, to live holy lives. The word holy means set apart, set apart. And one of the main themes of 1 Corinthians is this theme, that to be a Christian means that you have been set apart by God for a purpose. Do you know that? You have been set apart by God for a purpose. And that is why, here in the opening verses of this letter, Paul emphasizes this idea of calling. He says in verse 1, I have a calling to be an apostle. But then he says in verse 2, but you also have a calling. You are called to be saints. See, here's how it works. On the one hand, when you put your faith, your trust in Jesus, and you cling to him and trust in him for your salvation, God stamps your paper with his rubber stamp. He stamps it, and it says, boom, forgiven redeemed, righteous, holy. He puts those stamps on your paper. That's who he declares you to be. That is who you are in his eyes. That is your status if you are trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished for you on the cross of Calvary. But then he says, but you're also called to live as a saint. In other words, as a redeemed person, God is calling you to live as someone whose life has been set apart by God for a purpose. He goes on in verse 2 to say this, you are called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reminding them and us that to be a Christian isn't just something that's between you and God alone. That tends to be, in our very individualistic society, we tend to gravitate towards that kind of thinking. This is just between me and God. You can butt out. But Paul's saying, no, no, no. Remember, you're called together to be, to be saints. In other words, to be a Christian means that you have not only been called to relationship with God alone, but you have been called to be part of the body of Christ, the global fellowship of people who are following Jesus, and we're pooling our resources here in the local church, right, our gifts and talents to build each other up, to encourage each other as we follow Jesus, and also to carry out God's mission in the world of spreading the good news of his grace and truth to people in every nation and in every neighborhood. In other words, to be a Christian is all about being called. It's all about calling. God has called you to a relationship with him. God has called you to be set apart for his purpose. God has called you also to be part of his church, and God has called us to follow him and serve him together to do his work in the world until Jesus returns. Now, Paul says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. Grace is what God does for you. It's what God gives to you, not because you've earned it, not because you've deserved it, but in spite of those things, because he loves you. You see, the Bible tells us that salvation is an act of God's grace. What that means is this. The Bible says this. The wages, right, a wage is something you earn. The wages of our sin, the wages of our actions is death. 
But the gift, the grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In other words, salvation is not something you can earn. It's not something you could ever deserve. It is something that God does for you, and you receive it as a gift. But listen, God's grace isn't just limited to salvation. So when we use the word grace, we're not just talking about the salvation of our souls, but the grace of God extends into every area of our life. It's every good and perfect gift that comes down from God to us. And in verses 4 through 7, Paul talks about a specific grace of God that the Corinthians have received. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The specific grace of God that Paul is giving thanks for in these verses are the spiritual gifts that God had given the Corinthian Christians. We studied about the gifts of the Spirit just a few weeks ago in our Spirit-Filled Life series. And what we read here is that the Corinthian Christians were not lacking in any spiritual gift. The Corinthian Christians were super gifted. But I want you to notice something in this text. Notice in this text that Paul never praises the Corinthians. Did you notice that? He praises God for God's work amongst them and in them, but he never praises the Corinthians. He never commends them in any way in these verses. And that's important to note, and here's why. Because although the Corinthian Christians were super gifted, they were also super arrogant. And what Paul is going to show them and us here in this letter is that giftedness is not the same thing as maturity. It's possible to be gifted and be very immature. And arrogance is not spiritual. That's what Paul's pointing out here. After all, we follow Jesus, don't we? The most spiritual person who ever lived and the defining characteristic of his life is that he was humble and he prioritized others above himself. Well, even though the Corinthian Christians abounded in spiritual gifts, they were plagued by immorality, divisions, and bad theology. And Paul's goal in writing this letter is to help the Corinthian Christians move from immaturity to maturity. And that's my hope for us as well as we study this letter, that these words that we study by the grace of God and the Spirit of God would help us to grow into maturity as followers of Jesus. And a big part of maturity and following Jesus is to have humility and love like Jesus did. Well, even though Paul will spend most of this letter critiquing the Corinthians, rebuking sins, correcting errors. He is sincerely thankful for God's work in their lives. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, Hey, as messed up as you guys might be, as messed up as your church might be, I am so confident. I have so much confidence that you are going to be okay, that you're going to get where you need to go. And why is he confident? He's not confident in the Corinthians' faithfulness to God. You know what he's confident in? He's confident in God's faithfulness to the Corinthians, that God, who began this good work in them, will see it through to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. 
You know, for all of us, there are times in our walk with God when we get tired, when we get weak, when we stumble. There are times when our faith struggles, our faith fails. There are times when, when you might feel that you are struggling to hold on to God. But here's the good news. That when your grip on God gets weak, his grip on you does not. Listen, I, I have a young daughter, and there's a park near our house. But to get to the park, we have to walk across a busy street. So I always tell my daughter, she needs to hold my hand and hold it tight so that she'll be safe as we walk across the busy street. And so she reaches up, she takes my hand, and she holds on tight as we walk to the park. But just imagine, what if at one point we're walking to the park, crossing the busy street, and either because of fear or because of exhaustion and being tired, she loses her grip on me. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Here's the truth. Although she might think that she's holding on to me, and she is, the truth is, I'm also holding on to her. And my grip on her is so much stronger than her grip on me. And if her grip on me fails, my grip on her will not fail. And that's the good news that we have in Jesus. That it isn't just that you are clinging to him, but know this, he is clinging to you and his grip on you will not fail if you are in his faithful hands. That's really good news, guys. Verse 10, we read this. Paul tells us what the problem is in the Corinthian church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word division here in verse 10 that's mentioned there is the Greek word schismata, from which we get our English word schism. And the word schismata carries with it this idea of ripping something into pieces, tearing something apart. I just want you to imagine that. Imagine something beautiful, something that you love, a, a work of art being ripped in front of your eyes into pieces, being torn apart. How would that make you feel? Well, that's how God felt when he looked at the church in Corinth and he saw them being torn apart by unnecessary divisions. Right? We said the cure for unnecessary divisions. Why? Because there are necessary divisions. We'll talk about that. But they were being torn apart by unnecessary divisions. And Paul is appealing to them as an apostle in the name of Jesus that they would be unified. When Jesus was here on earth, he gave a promise and he prayed a prayer that are inextricably linked. He promised in Matthew chapter 16 that he would establish his church and the gates of hell would never overcome it. In other words, he guaranteed the, the establishment and the furtherance of the church. But then Jesus also prayed a prayer. So that was the promise. He'd establish his church and further it. But then he prayed a prayer in John chapter 17 that his followers in the church would be united in the same way that he and the Father were united in a fellowship of love. And this is why Paul says here in verse 10, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Now you might wonder, well, what does that mean practically? Does that mean that we're not supposed to have our own opinions? Does that mean that we have to agree about everything? good luck finding people who agree on anything, much less everything. Does that mean there's no room for differing opinions or anything like that? Well, listen, what is this unity that we are to strive for as members of the church and as followers of Jesus? First of all, let me tell you what unity is not. So what it is not talking about when it talks about unity. First of all, unity does not mean letting go 
of our convictions or compromising our beliefs in order to appease other people. It's not unity at all costs with all people. For example, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. Do you think I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. What is that all about? It means that Jesus came to draw a line in the sand. And he said, you're either on this side of the line or you're on that side of the line. It's one or the other. You're either with me or you're not with me. Jesus, belief in Jesus, in other words, divides people, and rightly so. Seeking unity is not about giving up our beliefs or compromising our convictions. The Apostle Paul, think about this. He was a person, the same man who's telling them to strive for unity together. He is a person who had deeply held beliefs and convictions, and he fought for the truth, and he risked his life for his beliefs. In the, in the letter to the Galatians, for example, Paul calls out the Apostle Peter for what he deems to be hypocrisy in Peter's actions. Later in this letter, Paul's going to advise the Corinthian Christians to kick somebody out of their church. Right? So this unity he's talking about is not unity at any cost. It is not unity at the expense of truth. Another thing that unity doesn't mean, it doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean uniformity, right? So there's room for differences of opinions, differences of expression. So what does this unity refer to? What is the unity that we're to have as followers of Jesus in the church? Well, first of all, we are to be united around certain theological convictions. So we have a unity of theology when it comes to primary issues. Let me explain. We are united around the truth, not in spite of the truth. We are united about what we believe about Jesus, right? We believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and he was God the Son, that he came and he lived a holy life. He died a sacrificial death for our sins. He rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and one day he will come again. And there is no other name under heaven which is given by which anyone can be saved except for the name of Jesus, because he alone conquered death and sin and the grave, and he alone is the Savior of the world. We're united in what we believe about the Bible, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. These are what we call primary theological issues. These are things that we're, we're willing to fight for. These are things that we're willing to give our lives for and die for, the hills that we will die on. But there are also other theological issues that we call secondary theological issues. Now, secondary theological issues are things that we read about in the Bible and we discuss them, but we don't divide over them. We discuss them as family, but we don't divide over them. They're issues about which there can be a variety of opinions by faithful, Jesus-loving Christians because either the Bible isn't crystal clear about them or because they aren't issues that matter expressly for salvation. We're also united in this unity that we seek over our mission. We're united in our mission. That as Christians, we are called to build each other up. We are called to carry out God's work in the world of bringing his love and grace and truth to people who desperately need it. And therefore, we are people who are radically committed to one another. This is important. We don't just throw up our hands and quit. We are radically committed to each other. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul calls us, he says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
See, the problem in the Corinthian church is that people were being divided and ripped apart by unnecessary divisions. And Paul mentions what those were in verses 11 and 12. He says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. They were forming cliques, right? They were forming uh, divisions, factions, based on who they followed as their spiritual leader, which preachers, which celebrity preachers they were into. And Paul says, hang on a second. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Paul and Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter, and Apollos, they, they were well-known preachers at this time, but they weren't preaching different messages. They were preaching the same thing. Each of them had their own unique style, but they weren't competing with each other to see who could be the most popular or gain the most followers. They weren't leading people in different directions. They were on the same team. Now, let me just say here real quick, this does not mean that it is bad that there are different kinds of churches out there. In fact, I think it's a good thing. I think that churches, it's good that we have different kinds of churches to reach different kinds of people, to emphasize different things. I would also say this. I don't think it's bad to prefer the preaching style of a certain preacher over that of perhaps another preacher. That's not the problem with the Corinthians. The Corinthians' problem was this. They were making these men out into celebrities, and then they were boasting about which of them they followed in reality, though, they were only boasting about themselves. Let me explain. When they said, I follow Paul, they weren't saying, Paul is the best, Paul is great. They were saying, I am the best, I am great, because I follow Paul, therefore I'm better than you. Right? You follow that other loser over there. Right? It wasn't about Peter being great. It was their way of saying, I'm better than you, because I follow Peter. Right? In other words, it was a competition. It, it, was, it was division, not just discussion. They were saying, I'm more spiritual than you. I'm better than you. You've got it all wrong. They didn't just have preferences. They had prejudices. They didn't just have differences. They had divisions. And at the root of it all was pride. The, the kind of division that's being talked about here is ungodly. It's not the heart of God. Jesus unites believers, but sin divides. Did you know that? That's always the case. Sin always leads to separation. In every case, sin leads to separation. Separation from God, separation from others. So how do we avoid unnecessary divisions in the body of Christ? How do we make sure that we, as followers of Jesus, are engaged in the battles that God wants us to be engaged in and not causing unnecessary divisions? Well, that brings us to the second half of our sentence. The cure for unnecessary divisions is found in being united by the higher calling we have in Jesus. Paul says something interesting in verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize very many of you so that none of you can say that you were baptized into my name. Now, at first, it seems a bit weird. Why would Paul be glad that he didn't baptize people? Isn't baptizing people a good thing? Well, it is. But the problem is that the Corinthians were doing this thing where they were bragging and they were competing with each other about who had baptized them. They wanted to be baptized by celebrity pastors. And so Paul says, this is ridiculous. You guys are totally missing the point. And he says in verse 17, 
for Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is the message that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to live a holy life and die a sacrificial death and rise from the grave for you so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the message of the cross, not only does it give hope to our hearts, but it gives purpose and direction to our lives here and now because to be a Christian is to be someone who has been set apart by God for a purpose. His purpose for your life is that you would know him, but that's not all. He also wants you to be set apart and join him in his mission to share his love and grace and truth with the world, with others. You know this, there are a lot of controversies out there, aren't there? There are a lot of things that people get riled up about and divide over. But I'll tell you this, as a Christian, here's where I'm at. I only want to be known for one controversy, the controversy of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the one controversy I want to be known for. When people hear my name, what I want to come to their mind, when they think of me, when they hear my name, I don't want the thing that comes to their mind to be my views on politics or economics or food or sports or anything else. I want them, when they think of me, to say, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, that's the Jesus guy. That's the Jesus guy. He's into Jesus. That's what he's, he's all about. Listen, I have opinions about lots of things. In fact, I have opinion on everything. So do you. But you know what else? I don't need to argue my opinion about every single topic with every single person. Why? Because I'm a man on a mission. And that mission drives my decisions. And that my mission is not to promote myself or further my agenda or my opinions. You know what my mission is? To know Jesus and help other people know the love and grace of God. And, and the hope that exists because of the cross. You know what? I read an interesting study about how in the several months immediately following the terror attacks of 9-11, murder rates in the United States dropped dramatically. Now think about this. In the months after 9-11, people literally stopped killing each other. Why? Well, they, they said, in fact, if you, if you look at the statistics and follow the, follow the studies, you'll notice this that in times of great national crisis, when there's something to rally around, right, a great cause to fight for, here's what happens. Crime rates go down and mental health visits go down. But on the other hand, when there's not a great cause for people to rally around, crime rates go up and mental health visits go up. In other words, what it's saying is people, you and me, you know what we're like? We're like pickup trucks. We drive a lot straighter when we've got a load in the back, when we're carrying a load. And in the same way, here's the deal. If you don't have a mission, if you don't have a higher calling, a purpose for your life that you're pursuing, then you know what happens? We tend to get sick and we tend to attack each other. Remember, the deadliest battle in the deadliest war in American history was not fought by outsiders. It was fought amongst ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we have a higher calling the highest calling, the most important mission, the only one that really matters in the end. 
That is, we're called to be the people of God in the world. We're called to encourage each other and build each other up. We're called to help others make their next step in relationship with God. We're called to be the people of God in the world through whom God is communicating and through whom God is redeeming. This higher calling, which comes from the gospel, to know Jesus and make him known, this is what unites us. This is what also guides us and helps us to avoid unnecessary divisions. Now, maybe there's some of you here today, and you've had unnecessary divisions in your life, maybe in your relationships caused by pride. I don't know, but maybe it's time for you to forgive. Maybe it's time for you to seek reconciliation, and that might require you to apologize. But listen, you know what Abraham Lincoln said, going back to the, the Civil War? He said this, the best way to destroy your enemies is to make them your friends. Because in the moment that you make your enemy your friend, they're no longer your enemy. And as Christians, you know what we're called to do? We're called to come together around the truth of the gospel, around Jesus Christ, because we have a higher calling and purpose in him. And to those who are on the other side of that line in the sand that Jesus drew, those who are without Christ, we extend an olive branch to them, and we invite them to come over and be part of this, to be united around Christ and reconciled to God in him. Listen, on the cross, Jesus tore down the dividing wall that existed between you and God. He took your sins and he gave you his righteousness as a gift. And the question for you today is this. Will you receive his grace today? And having done that, will you now live as a beacon of his love and grace towards others? Please stand with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.